Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome into the Computer America Show. We are the nation's longest-running, nationally syndicated radio talk show on computers and technology. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Ben Crossman, and I hope all of you are having a fantastic day. And uh, hey, it's Friday, so it can't be too bad as we head into the weekend. But before we do, we have one more episode of Computer America for you, where today we will be focusing on computer and technology news for the entire hour. So this will be everything that we didn't get to cover yesterday. We spent a lot of time talking with our guest uh, from Lucid, and, you know, that was a great interview. Loved it. And But, hey, I think this last uh, you know, last day of the week, we're really going to focus on getting uh, a lot of the Samsung news out of the way, as well as some other fun tidbits that, uh, that we have for you. So, but before we get started, a couple of things, including ComputerAmerica.com. That's where you'll find everything from the show notes, uh, any links, videos, uh, stories, articles, anything like that will be found in one place right there on our homepage. Uh, also, while you're there, be sure to check out the social media contest brought to you by Logitech. And on top of that, be sure to check out the live video stream, which is brought to you by OWC. And you can also find that at twitch.tv forward slash Computer America. If you feel like heading over to the chat room and you can make it here 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern, then we are there live taking your questions, comments, concerns, and uh, ignoring most of them. So there you go. Uh, But hey, uh, like I said, hope everyone out there is having a great Friday. And we, uh, we, of course, are going to get started here. So, again, for the entire show, Computer and Technology News, brought to you by OWC. Here we go. All right. So, I think for our first story that we're going to do, uh, let's actually uh, tackle this headfirst and really try to get into everything that we know uh, happened with Samsung. So if you didn't know, I believe it was called like the Unpacked event, whatever the heck they call it. But essentially, it was one big event to show what Samsung is up to. And that includes everything from the phone. We were right in the middle of the phone when we had to interrupt it and get to our guests. But that includes everything from a phone to a smart speaker, think uh, Google Home or Amazon Echo type device. And uh, some smartwatches and more. So we're going to go ahead, tackle that, try to get that out of the way here pretty quick. But um, yeah, you know, hey, they showed off some pretty cool uh, stuff over there at uh, at Samsung. You know, just stuff that you, uh, again, kind of as you said earlier, Samsung plays at the top end of the spectrum as far as it goes with uh, phones and other devices they are one of the most expensive in the consumer electronics world and that means that they're you know hey technology is a pretty linear scale you know it's not like someone is 
explicitly overcharging you or, you know, kind of going, the more money you're, you can put into a piece of technology, in a lot of cases, the better that technology is. I'm not saying that there aren't deals. I'm not saying that it's not possible to get a good bargain. I'm saying that a $100 webcam is going to be much, uh, you know, very inferior to, let's say, a $1,000 camera. It's just the way technology is. Um, you get what you pay for in a lot of cases. So that's why we really enjoyed talking about Samsung is because, again, hey, they play at the top. So, all right, so let's see, let's see, let's see. Let's go ahead and talk about, let's see, and I think this was, this was the last one. So we have four stories, and they all revolved around Samsung. Let's go ahead and get into these. So the first one, we're going to pick up where we left off yesterday, and that would be the phones. So the Samsung Galaxy Note 9, this is their biggest of the big when it comes to, uh, oh, there we go. So this is the biggest of the big when it comes to their smartphones, and this thing's massive. So again, some of the specs, 4,000 uh, milliamp ba- battery, which means that uh, it's a bit longer battery life than many of the phones out there. Many of the phones that you know and love have anywhere from a 2,500 to a 3,500 milliamp ba- battery. This thing is able to sport a 4,000, so you know maybe an hour or two over its competitors. Uh, resolution 3,000 by 1,400, not too bad. Much much better than 1080p, so you're not going to be you know kind of worried about screen real estate there. Uh, let's see, you're also looking at 128 gigs of storage, which can go up to 500 gigs, as well as another 500 from a micro SD card slot, which means this one phone, this one device can store up to one terabyte of data. Very, very good for working professionals or uh, just someone who has maybe a lot of music and you don't want to part from it. Or, you know, a trend that a lot of people are doing, they are downloading their Netflix, Hulu, Amazon video, whatever. They're downloading it so that they can then take it onto planes. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, if storage is a priority for you, then this is probably one of the biggest phones that we've seen that can do that. Uh, let's see, they also get into the performance, where the Note 9 will include a 10 nanometer processor, which uh, they say will either be the Snapdragon 845 or the Samsung, uh, wow, uh, Exynos, 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 whatever, uh, chip, which uh, Samsung Exynos chip, depending on where you live. So Snapdragon you know, as much as we talk about Intel and AMD here on the show, as far as processors go, Snapdragon. There's a reason Snapdragon is uh, is like the second biggest processor in the world, or even maybe in a lot of cases the first, because yeah, Snapdragon's just in everything. So that doesn't surprise me one bit. But that is one of their higher quality Snapdragon device or uh, processors. So very very cool there. They also say it comes with a water carbon cooling system. I don't know what a water carbon cooling system is, and AI performance tuning to help keep the speeds up for games and other high-intensity tasks. Uh, And finally, the Samsung is joining the ranks of Android vendors offering 6 gigs of RAM with a phone. Many people's computers don't support 6 gigs of RAM. I mean, it's, uh, you know, for a desktop computer, that's really not a big deal. Uh, Yeah, that's pretty cheap, but for a phone, very impressive. Uh, they said that you'll only get the 6 gigs in the 128, whereas the 512 model packs 8 gigs of RAM for heavy multitasking. This thing's going to be a beast. 
But one more point we should touch on here, and here's the problem. It's a beast of a phone. There's no way around it. This thing is borderline one of the best tablets you can probably buy on the market because, again, it sports a 6.4-inch screen, which is, you know, quite bulky. Uh, And for a phone, the specs are really, really good. The problem comes to the fact that, and I've seen it in, you know, in our chat room here. I've seen it, you know, voiced by a couple other people. When you think phone, I think a lot of people are still stuck in the, you know, uh, the iPhone 5S, the Samsung Galaxy Note 7 uh, kind of mindset, thinking that a phone at most should run you like 800 bucks, you know, 750, 800. And that's like for people who really like their phones. Well, the Samsung Galaxy Note 9, they have thrown out the rule book. They've said, you know what, we're going to give you the best phone that you can possibly get. And on paper, so far, it looks like they've done just that. But speaking of paper, you'll have to cough up a lot of it. Because the price where a contract-free phone, and you really want to uh, emphasize the contract-free part because any contract that you get yourself into, you know, be it through any of the major carriers here in the United States, you're going to be paying more than that. There's no one out there who's going to give you a phone for less than sticker price. So the contract-free price is going to be $1,000 for the base phone. $1,000. That is a high-end laptop, a, you know, a, uh, I take it back. That's a mid-range laptop to a high-end computer to now this phone. $1,000 for the base phone, which can jump up to twelve fifty. For the you know for the 512, which has you know higher RAM, more storage, uh, you know a couple other perks, and you know 1,250 bucks. Now a lot of people look at that number and they say, this is the obvious you know kind of evolution of smartphones. We're asking more of them, we are demanding more of them, and we are doing more on our phones. So where you would think maybe a couple of years ago, you know, paying over a thousand dollars for a phone would be unconscionable. That'd be, you know, we joked about a $10,000 phone uh, that was covered in gold and diamonds and things like that. And it was, you know, it was a lot of fun to joke about these expensive phones, but now we look at them and go, you know, some people could probably justify the cost. It's not just an exercise in, you know, burning money, but, it's an exercise in, I use my phone six hours a day, either, you know, doing other kind of tasks, using it for productivity or any number of you know, different things. Maybe $1,250 is okay. But there's probably the vast majority out there who are going to say 1250 way too much. That's too much for a phone. Uh, we're not going to pay that much. That's it. And then there's the third camp, which is, wait, phones cost that much? I never knew. I just pay $80 a month for 24 months. I had no idea that phones were so expensive. Because, what is it? I think it's like 90% of all phones are purchased through some kind of payment plan uh, contract through one of the, you know, through one of the four major providers here in the United States. 
no one really buys their phone outright. That's more of an overseas thing and uh, just not an American thing. But people are still paying that price. It's just you know kind of spread out over two years, and then they feel kind of justified. They feel it's okay. Uh, I, I I I don't know what else to say other than this is a really good phone. Again, on paper. Uh, this ha- has probably some of the best specs I've ever seen on a phone, and it's awesome. But the price is exorbitant. It is crazy. And by the way, they're also offering some launch day perks, including uh, some Fortnite bucks. We have another Fortnite story. Fortnite has taken this world by storm. And uh, they're also giving you some noise-canceling headphones uh, if you pre-purchase early. But all in all, Samsung Galaxy Note 9 the most expensive phone from Apple or Samsung that we've ever seen. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty crazy. So there's that one. And then there is, let me see if we can pull this one up. So, again, we're going to try to get through all the Samsung real quick. Uh, the next one didn't make sense to a lot of people, but, uh, hey, I guess they don't have to when you are talking about things that make sense. So now... We're going to talk about the Galaxy Home. This is Samsung's answer to um, Amazon Alexa or Google Home or uh, even Apple Siri to a lesser extent or even to a lesser extent to that, uh, Microsoft Cortana. Bixby has long been one of the furthest behind when it comes to digital assistants. Their digital assistant, as far as English speaking goes, as I understand it, well, it just had trouble understanding English speakers. It uh, it spoke Korean very well. Uh, It was able to do things in Korean apps very well. But as far as being an American-centric device or, you know, just something that could compete in the American market, it was woefully behind. So if you're watching the video portion, you're going to see this big thing that a lot of people have described as, well, I've seen some people call it a grill. It, uh, like, uh, you know, for cooking, it's, uh, it's big, it's bulbousy, it's, uh, it has these three little legs that come off of it, kind of cute in its own way, but uh, also I think it's trying very hard to be different in a field where there's just not that much you can do to differentiate yourself. So I digress. The Galaxy Home. Samsung has been developing a speaker. And by the way, this is an article from Engadget. Uh, Engadget did great, great, great work covering the whole event yesterday. Uh, and yeah, so this one from Engadget, Edgar Alvarez, talking about how the how Samsung has been developing a speaker based on its own digital assistant, Bixby, for a while. And today, we're getting our first look, today being yesterday, saying that during the company's Galaxy Note 9 event, they said that Samsung finally revealed the Galaxy Home smart speaker, a clear rival to the Apple HomePod, the Google Home, and the Amazon Echo line. So they said that the device, which features the rumored uh, tripod design with a round body, yes, tripod legs, uh, and it definitely has curves, just I don't think in the right place, but uh, they said that it's powered by Harman by Harman's AKG audio and was engineered to make music sound amazing. You know what? 
I think a lot of speakers are engineered to make stuff sound good. But uh, what do I know? Of course, this is a smart speaker after all, and you'll be able to use your voice to control it. Samsung says that there are eight microphones built in for far field voice recognition. So that uh, you know kind of implies that it's going to be able to hear you very clearly, regardless of how far away you are trying, you know, uh, in a room, you are trying to talk to it. And yeah, they said that if you say things like, uh, you know, uh, well, I, I, I doubt that anyone has, has this thing because it, first of all, it's not even made yet. But if you say things like Bixby sound steer and uh, the Galaxy home will calibrate its audio and direct it at you in the future, through a new partnership between Samsung and Spotify, you'll have the ability to play music from the streaming service on the home. So again, this thing is called Galaxy Home. So we have Google Home, Galaxy Home, and that, and uh, yeah, don't get the two confused. So there's no pricing, no details of availability, but it was one of the first time that we were able to see the device. They will be coming out with it, and all in all, yeah. Bixby has never really been a true competitor. It has a long way to go as far as development goes. And, you know, admittedly, anything Samsung does, Samsung is not a small player in this field, but they're just not a competitive one. So, yeah, they have a lot of development to do. So, all right, there's that one. Uh, Two more to go for Samsung, you know, to catch you up on what happened at the event on Thursday in New York. And actually, let, and, and by the way, the third story we're actually going to skip because I'm you know, kind of digging further into it. And essentially, it's uh, picking on the Bixby. As I said before, uh, it's not, you know, it's not exactly viable. So let's just go ahead and skip, skip over to the last one. And this one's pretty cool. I think this one actually has a lot of promise as far as what was announced by Samsung. And, you know, this is something that a lot of smartwatches you know, kind of miss is that a lot of smartwatches, they try to be watches that look like little computers strapped to your wrist, as opposed to, you know, some, uh, some of the obvious uh, ground to cover there is that some people just want a smartwatch that looks like a watch, but has all the, uh, you know, but has all the features of a computer. So, Let's get into this. Uh, Again, if you're watching the video portion, you can see them here. They look like really nice watches. They look like really high-end watches. They do not look like uh, the Apple Watch. They do not look like uh, the Pebble or anything like that. They look like really nice watches. So this is the Samsung Galaxy Watch. It's taking the same branding as the Galaxy line of phones, and it looks like a real watch, obviously. So they said that... uh, they said that it's not a surprise that the company announced the Galaxy Watch at its event today, saying that it will come in two sizes, sorry, which include a 42 millimeter, uh, which will be priced at about 330 bucks, versus a 46 millimeter, which will be 350. So 20 bucks more gets you four more millimeters. Hey, you know, I know a lot of people that uh, that would do that. So they said that the 40, the 46 millimeter watch will come in silver. Well, the 42 will come in midnight and uh, midnight black and rose gold. Uh, so silver, black, gold, take your choice. And you can start pre-ordering here, uh, I think it said today. So they said that the Galaxy Watch looks like an actual watch, not a smartwatch. 
complete with a circular bezel and rotating design. And many of the features are similar to the previous Samsung smartwatches. And they have LTE connectivity and a battery that will last several days. And then you have to start winding it. I'm kidding. It's not a wind-up watch. It's, uh, you know, it's just a nice watch. So they said that, uh, and they said that part of it is thanks to a processor that was created specifically for smartwatches. And, of course, the LTE connection allows you to answer calls, respond to text, stream music, and more, again, all through the watch. So they said that the Galaxy Watch will offer faces aimed at productivity. A daily briefing feature will certainly help those at, uh, will certainly help there as the watch can sync with your calendar and show you your appointments on the home screen. You can purchase a variety of bands, and uh, there will be over about 60,000 faces for the watch. So if you don't like one, you can go out to the uh, you know, quote-unquote app store and get a new face for your phone. Or, well, a, a new face for your smartwatch. Uh, let's see, the, uh, the watch also has a 5 ATM water resistance. So, like, a 5 isn't wear it in the shower or whatever. Like, a 5 is like, uh, you know, it, it can get wet, but you're going to want to dry it off. Like, I think, like, a, let's see, I, I think, like, a 5 rating is, like, you know, it's, like, splash resistant, which is okay. A 6 is, like, up to 3 feet of water submerged for, like, 5 minutes. And then, like, a 7 rating, as far as water goes, is like up to, I want to say like 300 feet. So it's splash resistant as far as smart uh, smart watches go. So of course the watch has also has fitness and health tracking. It has connected health features, including stress management, which will track your heart rate and offer suggestions if it thinks you need to (laughs) de-stress. I do like the idea that your watch would be like, Ben, you are getting far too worked up. You need to sit down and meditate for five minutes, watches orders. I like that. So in addition to Samsung Health, there's access to Samsung Pay, Bixby, and SmartThings so that you can keep tabs on all the things Samsung has right on your wrist. So there's that one. As much as I don't like Bixby and as much as I don't like the Bixby smart speaker, uh, I think that their smartwatch really hit the mark. For a long time, even though the smartwatch uh, category has been uh, you know, not as growth, uh, it's not seen as much growth as I think even you know, the smartwatch companies would have liked, the Samsung products have always been a strong competitor in that field. And this just goes to show why they will continue to be as such. Because where Apple is trying to make it very apparent that you are wearing an Apple device, which, you know, hey, let's face it, Apple is the saddest thing. This one just looks like a really nice watch that also has connected features to it, which is a really good idea. So, all right. There you go. There's that one. Uh, Again, all of these stories were just catch up from yesterday for Samsung's event and happy that we could do them. So, all right, let's go ahead. Let's see if there's anything else from yesterday that we really wanted to uh, to, to uh, mention. And how about this one? All right, two stories, and then we'll move on to today's stories. And let's see. Let's see. I think we can talk about this one real quick. So this one isn't exactly consumer-facing, but 
it is pretty darn cool. So when we talk about storage and memory, for everyone out there who's kind of new around here, when you talk about memory in a computer or any kind of system, you're talking about RAM, random access memory. And, you know, that can be measured in 8, 16, 32, 64, 128 gigabytes of RAM or gigs of RAM. You'll hear that thrown around a lot, and that is memory. The other side is called storage. And some people sometimes call it memory as well, but they mean storage, and that's the amount of data you can store on one drive, be it uh, an SSD, HDD, or you know, uh, let's see, a solid-state drive or a traditional hard drive. And in a lot of cases, those were denoted by how much they could store based on gigabytes. So a lot of uh, solid-state drives, they're just now getting to the point to where we are talking about uh, like a one terabyte SSD or a four terabyte SSD. We just had an interview with, uh, with one of our sponsors, uh, OWC, where they were pushing their, uh, or at least they were just making available their four terabyte SSD. And they have like 30 terabyte traditional hard drives. So in a lot of cases, the reason that I'm saying this in concerns to the story is that a lot of the storage that we hear about is measured in terabytes. So that's a thousand gigs. That's a lot of storage, even by today's standards. Uh, you know, terabytes is a good unit of measurement. Now, here's why I mention all this. This from The Verge, Intel, you know them, they do stuff. Intel's new uh, ruler, and uh, yeah, they call it that because if you look at the, uh, you know, if, if you look at the image of it, it looks like a ruler, you know, a really long ruler, and uh, you know, like uh, inches and centimeters and whatnot. Yeah, you got it. So they said that the new ruler SSD could pack one petabyte of data in a single server rack. So a server rack is, uh, you know, is another thing that we don't really talk about here because it's not really consumer facing, but a, but a server rack are these, you know, maybe you've seen like behind the scenes at Google or things like that. They're the big, you know, kind of caged looking things, uh, you know, finished in black and yeah, you know, these things are there to store massive amounts of data so that Amazon web services and, you know, Microsoft Azure can can do what they do, well, you want to squeeze as much memory as you can that is as effective as it can be and as fast as it can be. Because if you have more, if you have more storage, I just use memory, if you have more storage and it works faster, more efficiently, and it doesn't generate as much heat, the better your bottom line is. And this is where a lot of money is being made, so there's a lot of effort to see who can have the best of the best when it comes to this area. Intel is rolling out their new SSD, which can have one petabyte in a single rack, which is amazing. It, it, this is the first time I've heard of, uh, of something like this. So the hard drives and the SSDs come in pretty standard shapes at this point. There's the 3.5-inch drive for desktops, the 2.5-inch for laptops, and the new M.2 standard that basically looks like a giant stick of RAM. Well, Intel's new enterprise SSDs are changing that with the company's new ruler design, which is designed to optimize storage density 
while also reducing the amount of power and cooling. And this is by Tech uh, Gauge. So by having this design, you know, instead of having a cube where you limit your surface area, this allows as much surface area as possible so that it can cool itself, uh, you know, just better. So again, efficiency goes up. Cooling is always a problem when it comes to storage. And yeah, this thing's a beast. So the new drive with their slimmed down shapes are designed for server racks where Intel says they'll be able to massively increase the amount of storage on hand. And while the company isn't offering much in the way of information or how big each one will be, Intel claims that the company will be able to reach one petabyte or 1,000 terabytes or 1 million gigabytes worth of storage in a single U, uh, I'm sorry, one U server rack, which is the smallest size rack available. And in comparison, the traditional 10 terabyte 3.5 inch hard drives would require a dramatically larger 4U rack with a similar increased power supply and cooling costs. So it's unlikely that we'll see any super long skinny desktops in our future, but this is just another cool way that uh, that Intel is trying to, you know, meet demand. And yeah, uh, hey, it's just different form factor, and I thought it was uh, it was pretty darn cool. So check that out. Again, not exactly consumer facing, but uh, it's different. It's different, all right. All right. So there's that one, and then. And then the music starts. So everyone, the music playing in the background means that we are about to go off to break. And when we come back, we're going to get into uh, some of today's news, where we talk about, um, you know, where we talk about things such as Apple and the Apple Car. We're going to talk about Google and the Fortnite debacle, or if it if it even is that, and more. So everyone, more computer technology news when we come back. Computer America, stay tuned. And welcome back to the Computer America Show, 32 minutes past the hour as we continue on here. And by the way, why don't we go ahead and before we get to our technology news again, let's draw a winner from uh, the contest. So for those of you who are new, every single week we give away a prize to, uh, you know, to one lucky listener who has taken the time, energy, effort to enter our contest, which you can find at the homepage at Computer America. So... This week's winner is uh, let's see, actually we have something for this before we get started. There we go. So, Computer America Social Media Contest brought to you by Logitech uh, is a very easy way to enter to win an M720 triathlon mouse from the company. And this week's winner is the one, the only. Oh, wow! Ooh, wow! I did that. There we go. So I just said all that stuff, and no one even heard me. That's okay. Uh, this week's winner for our social media contest is, and that's brought to you by Logitech, is Miss Anita Mitchell. All right, so Anita Mitchell listens to us uh, in Seneca, Missouri, United States. So, uh, yeah, Seneca, Missouri, and all she had to do was, oh, this is actually, uh, let's see. So there's like, you know, 13 different, or like, there's like 13 different entries you can have. Uh, like eight different ways that you can enter. 
And one of the ways that you can enter the social media contest is by referring a friend. Oh, I take it back. We've had one other person who referred a friend, and this person also referred a friend, and they, well, hey, they just won. So here we go. This week's winner is Anita Mitchell, and we have her information. We're, we're going to get in touch with her, and uh, yeah, it's just that easy. So if you want to be next week's Anita, then all you have to do is go to ComputerAmerica.com and uh, yeah, enter the contest. We could be calling your name live on the air to give you a prize. So just that, just that simple, just that cool. So let's go ahead and uh, yep, yeah, let's go ahead and continue on. So, yep, everyone, if you miss any part of today's show, we are doing computer and technology news. And if you want to catch up on it, podcasts, wherever podcasts are heard, that is where you want to be. Because uh, Computer America can be heard on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Blog Talk Radio, and more. Or if you're listening to us live on IRN, we appreciate that too. So, yep, let's go ahead and continue on with computer and technology news. Let's talk about today's news and a lot of really a lot of really interesting things and things that we should probably talk about. The first one is uh so we covered this more when net neutrality was still a thing. Uh it is not anymore. There are a couple of states that are putting legislation into their uh state level government that are very similar to net neutrality, but we had a federal net neutrality program that, well, policy that was uh, removed. And if you recall, during our coverage of that, one of the biggest things was a proposed DDoS attack. It was a DDoS standing for a distributed denial of service attack. That's when a massive number of robots or automated controlled computers go out and disrupt a website through bogus traffic or any number or you know any kind of request for information essentially it's a way for a massive or a single individual to disrupt the service of a website and the FCC claimed they were being DDoSed so they were justified during this whole uh, debate over net neutrality they were justified in blocking a lot of traffic. They were justified in taking down their form for comments and so much more. Now, a lot of people who had been following uh, what was going on with this, uh, you know, with net neutrality, with the GPI, with, uh, you know, this supposed DDoS attack, they claimed it, but there's a very simple way that you can prove you were under a DDoS attack. And many many companies out there, they are more than willing to share this information because there's really nothing identifiable about the company by releasing it. They just show traffic logs. They can, you, know, you can see regular traffic, and then you can see a massive spike and then a massive crash as your service you know, kind of uh, collapses under the strain. So a lot of companies are more than willing to release that information just to show what was happening. The FCC did nothing of the sort. They came out, they, they claimed, they, and, and by the way, here's actually uh, the exact quote saying, beginning on Sunday night at midnight, our analysis revealed that the FCC was subject to multiple distributed denial of service attacks 
and that these were deliberate attempts by external actors to bombard the FCC's comment system with a high amount of traffic to our commercial cloud host. These actors were not attempting a file, uh, to file comments themselves. Rather, they made it difficult for legitimate commenters to access and file with the FCC. So, again, a number of security experts, they really did claim that uh, you know, it was very suspect because it had none of the usual telltale signs of an actual DDoS attack. And they said that they discovered the analysis the FCC supposedly conducted never actually took place. And when the media outlets began reporting that the FCC had zero evidence to support the DDoS claim, the FCC issued a punchy statement to multiple outlets accusing Gizmodo that, uh, of being completely irresponsible. So they said that the FCC has never stated that it lacks any documentation of the DDoS attack itself, and news reports claiming that the commission has said that there are, uh, has said this are without any basis and completely irresponsible. And they underlined this one. In fact, we have volume in it, or, or wow, we have a lot. Uh, we have a lot of documentation of this attack in the form of logs collected by our commercial cloud partners. So those logs, like I said, very easily accessed, very easy to publish. Again, not a lot of, uh, you know, the FCC is not one of those companies that really needs to keep their, or not one of those organizations that needs to keep their logs a secret. But they refuse to publish any of them. And then they come out with statements saying, we were DDoS. How dare you question us? We have a lot of documentation. This definitely happened. Well, eventually, through FOIA requests, so the Freedom of Information Act request, they made it clear that the FCC CIO either made up the DDoS attack or misinterpreted legitimate uh, Oliver viewer traffic. So Oliver, they're talking about John Oliver from uh, uh, last week tonight or whatever show he has. Uh, as a malicious act. But those emails also make clear that Pi's FCC then pushed the DDoS attack narrative to numerous tech reporters, apparently in a bid to try and downplay the public's massive opposition to the policies. So they said that, uh, you know, they said that uh, this act was only compounded by the FCC's refusal to seriously address the identity theft and fraud that polluted the repeals comment period. The only real time consumer had to voice their opinion. So essentially, why this matters? This matters because when there was the period for open comments, the FCC used the massive amount of traffic that was going to their site for voicing their opposition to this request they were able to completely write off saying, look at all this traffic, look at all this interest. And trust me, it was orders of magnitude greater than any other topic that is proposed by the FCC or yeah, the FCC. They looked at all that traffic and said, this doesn't matter. This is happening through malicious means. This is not real. Don't look at this. It doesn't matter. And then when there was an actual legitimate problem, which was uh, P 
people were having their identities stolen and voicing their opinions, you know, quote unquote, that were uh, very cookie cutter, used the same language, and used people's identities without their knowledge, including their home address, their first and last name, you know, which is really kind of all you needed to file a report. They looked at those and said, that's okay, fraud wasn't really an issue. Keep in mind, a couple of the people whose identities were stolen include none other than Barack Obama, former president of the United States, using his Washington, D.C. White House address to say that he was against the legislation that he put in place to make the whole thing possible. There was some very obvious and easily proven fraud going on, but they said, all right, so the conversation is split for and against, except there's a lot of people who are against repealing net neutrality. That's all fake traffic. And then look at all these reports about people who are for repealing it and don't worry that they're fake identities. So between those two, it took the conversation from here are the facts, here's what people want, to we don't know what the people want, there's too much noise in the system. And that's how the FCC was able to justify itself in saying, hey, we need to repeal this because this is what our constituents want, which by a lot of people was not the case. So they said that by hope, by uh, hoping to get ahead of the pretty damning investigation, uh, Ajit Pai issued a statement before the report was released, throwing everybody but himself under the bus for, uh, for the DDoS attack that wasn't. And this is a quote that just happened, uh, you know, just happened today, saying, quote, I am deeply disappointed that the FCC's former chief information officer, who was hired by the prior administration and is no longer with the commission, provided inaccurate information about the incident to me, my office, Congress, and the American people. This is completely unacceptable. I am also disappointed that some working under the former CIO apparently either disagreed with the information that was pres- uh, that was uh, that he was presenting or had questions about it, yet didn't feel comfortable communicating their concerns to me or my office. So, Ajit Pai, the chairman of the FCC, essentially saying that, hey, my, uh, my people did not give me the right information, and the people who were supposed to tell me this was not the right information chickened out. The buck does not stop at Ajit Pai's desk, apparently. So there you go. I think we're going to stop this whole thing here. You know, there's some more that goes into the report and, you know, just essentially this whole net neutrality repeal was done in bad faith. But, uh, you know, there's not a lot of precedent that shows that you can go back and reverse this, this decision after they voted on it and it's already been repealed. So. Yeah, net neutrality, while it's not dead, again, uh, fights continue to happen at the state level. Um, Yeah, it's just such bad and poor, uh, such uh, arguing in bad faith with the FCC was such a headache then and now. So there you go. All right. Uh, 
there's that one, FCC. They are a bunch of clowns. Let's go ahead and talk about uh, something a little bit more uplifting. Do we have something more uplifting? It's almost the show's almost over, and it's Friday. Let's try to get happy. Uh, happy, happy, happy. Hmm. Wow, not a lot of happy. All right, how about this one? Uh, you folks, you may know Shakespeare. He's written a play or two. And hey, you, maybe you had to read uh, some of his work in high school and then appreciate it because, you know, a couple hundred years, people haven't appreciated enough of his work, apparently. Well, here we have it. This is Herman Gadget talking about AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning. Researchers were able to teach a computer to compose sonnets like Shakespeare. And this by Andrew Tarantola and Gadget talking about in addition to penning 37 plays, Shakespeare was a prolific composer of sonnets, where he crafted about 154 of them during his life. And now, more than 400 years after his death, the Bard's words are influencing a new generation of poets. However, they will be done with silicon imagination and digital quills. Essentially, in collaboration with the University of Toronto, the University of Melbourne, and IBM's Australia division, they have managed to teach a neural network to craft sonnets just as well, just as Shakespeare did in the 16th century, using his own words to teach the machine. And they published their results at the 2018 ACL conference, and now you can play around with the network yourself at GitHub. So let's see, sonnets, uh, sonnets follow a specific structure and rhyming pattern. If you don't know, uh, each is composed of 14 lines, three, three quatrains followed by a couplet, for example. And, you know, they even include an example of Shakespeare there. You can enjoy that. I am terrible at reading Shakespeare. I would say that I have this high school teacher who was so good at reading Shakespeare, other English teachers would invite them to their classrooms on his lunch break so that he could read Shakespeare for the students. I remember it because he was so good because he would get into it. He would, uh, you know, he, he would really, it was like watching a play as someone read, you know, read the sonnet and he would spit on the kids in the front row. He would, you know, throw his arms out and, you know, you could hear him from across the building. It was a lot of fun. You know, he read it very, very well. And it was in that moment I realized I could never do that. I could never read Shakespeare like that. So I'm not even going to try, unfortunately, for all of you. But I digress. They said that uh, we are interested in understanding whether these forms can be learned automatically from data and without relying on external knowledges, uh, knowledge sources such as syllable or pronunciation dictionaries. So essentially, they fed in all of Shakespeare's work and they didn't tell it anything else. They just said, make, you know, make what you are learning. And they said that, uh, and let's see, they said that the combined total of 2,600 examples is actually a rather small data set for training a neural network, saying that the scale and the order of thousands of sonnets is actually tiny compared to a typical training data that deep learning systems take, which we've seen before, deep learning, as we know, uh, you know, deep learning, machine learning, AI, whatever, 
generally, you want millions of data points, not thousands. So at any rate, he said that we had, a fairly crea- uh, we had to be fairly creative when designing the network. We can't have an overly complex network as it will simply memorize the sonnets. The key is that we want the network to generalize its learnings so that it can compose new poems. And here's one of the uh, here's one of the shortened examples. And again, remember, this is an example created completely and wholly by the machine. Saying that so gently as the wind that flaps his wings and shoots a monarch on the English lays, and what was that with ma- with matters of all things? Tis well ashamed to know of all her ways. Now we're not going to have English appreciation. We're not going to pick apart this thing, but. It is important to know, wings and things, lays and ways, it was able to it was able to make its own quadrant uh, all by itself, without knowing anything about the English language, without knowing anything about uh, you know any of the you know, what exactly a sonnet is. It was able to make a part of a sonnet. I'm sure you know it made the entirety of a sonnet. So because the system understands the whys in addition to the hows of sonic creation, it can, in theory, be adapted to generate them in any language. So we're going to uh, go ahead and you know, kind of switch over, but I thought that was pretty cool. You know, teaching, we all thought that art was one of those fields that was going to be artificial intelligence proof, that it was going to be automation proof. Uh, how do you teach a computer to you know, to wax poetic. How do you teach a computer to appreciate a sunset and put that on a canvas? How do you teach a computer to understand the emotion of love and, you know, make a song out of it? And we all thought that that was something where humans, you know, that's the job humans were going to do when, you know, lift that, you know, lift that box or dig that hole. We're going to be completely automated by machines. But we're quickly learning that you can indeed teach a computer what is so special about anything, and it can then create art by itself. And, of course, the art would simply be, uh, you know, none of it will have extreme leaps in creativity like I'm sure humans are prone to do. But at the same time, if you are looking for something uh, similar to what's already out there, and that's already good, it can then evolve, you know, kind of upon that. And it can make great paintings, it can make great music, it can make sonnets now. Uh, That's something that computers are only going to get better and better at. So art, not as automation-proof as we first thought. There you go. Okay, Uh, let's talk about this one. Because this is one of the stories that pops up every couple of months. And at this point, I'm just ready to see anything come to fruition about this. So Apple, you may know them. They're worth a trillion dollars. They, um, turns out, it looks like they might just be building a car after all. As it rehires an ex-Tesla engineer head. So if you're looking for hints that Apple might deliver on its long-rumored plan to develop its own car, a significant one landed uh, this week after it emerged that Doug Fields, 
who's Apple's former VP of Mac Hardware Engineering, has rejoined the company after a spell with Tesla. Which isn't too uncommon. You know, some of these higher-ups, uh, some of these people with, uh, you know, very important jobs, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of cross-pollination between the likes of Apple, Microsoft, Google, Tesla, uh, you know, a lot of these big tech companies really do share the same small pool of talent at the very tippy top. So John Gruber at Daring Fireball broke the news of Field returning to Apple following five years at Tesla where he oversaw the production of the Model 3. And Apple confirmed in a statement that TechCrunch that it had rehired Field, but it declined to give information about his role. And they said that Field will link up with Bob Mansfield, the former colleague he worked with on the Mac hardware business, and Mansfield just so happened to be the person who was heading up Apple's Project Titan car project. So a couple projects in there, but yeah. Uh, having been tempted back and out of retirement, so there's a lot to dig into. Uh, there's been plenty of speculation about the secretive Project Titan, most notably that it was reported in 2016 that Apple had abandoned plans to develop a car. Instead, it was said to be focused on autonomous driving technology, and while the project remains pretty opaque and tough to gauge, the hiring of the man who oversaw the production of the Tesla cars uh, it's a pretty interesting clue that suggests Apple might be reviving plans to develop a car once again. And, you know, it's, uh, I wouldn't even go so far to say that Apple is probably developing their own car. I think that is just something Apple's not really into. Uh, you know, developing an entire car, admittedly, it's something that they could probably pull the resources together for. Uh, they would probably get people interested. But at the same time, I think that by rehiring someone who has been with the company before, hey, there's a lot of interest in that because he knows the, uh, you know, he knows the, uh, the culture at Apple. So you know, no, kind of acc- uh, no kind of acclimating there. And then he's worked with cars. So to me, it's still the self-driving technology around Apple that they're hoping to push. Uh, but by bringing back someone who has worked, you know, kind of hands-on in the car field, I think that they're still doing the automation. They're not going to develop a car, but at least they have someone who is going to be able to look at a car and say, this is where our shortcomings are because at Tesla, we tried this and it didn't work how we wanted it to, so we have to do it this way. Apple is probably developing the technology for self-driving cars, but I doubt you will see an Apple-branded car anytime, really, ever. So, yeah, it, it. but it was so an interesting story because it's, again, one of the stories that Apple and cars, you don't really think about them mixing and matching, but then over the past couple of years, you've been hearing exactly that, that Apple is looking to get into the car business. So, anyways, I think that's how we go. All right, last one before we head off into the weekend. And again, thank you everyone for joining us here on Computer America. Let's finish off with uh, some interesting news from Google, or I guess bad news from Google, involving this thing that we mentioned Tuesday on our Gamer Tuesday, and that is Fortnite is avoiding the Google Play Store. 
So the Google Play, it's uh, you know that's the app store that if you have any kind of Android phone, that's what you get your applications from. Well, the uh, Fortnite has chosen to bypass the the Google App Store altogether, and instead will be distributing their software on mobile phones through their own website. And they said that Fortnite has grossed about $180 million on iOS devices, and uh, yeah, and where it has been exclusively available since its launch, uh, since the launch of its invite-only beta in March 15th. So. In just a couple of months, it's made $180 million. And when it comes to Android, Google will stand to, and I don't even like hearing the word lose, uh, or even it will cost Google $50 million. It's just that Google will not get their 30% cut, which means that they won't get their $50 million from Fortnite pushing this to Android devices. Again, I don't think this costs Google anything. They don't lose anything. It's just that they don't uh, they don't get the money. Very important difference, and uh, really just goes to show just how big uh, Fortnite has become. So there you go. With that being said, everyone, let's uh, actually there we go. So yeah, with that being said, everyone, the music means that we're just about done here. Thank you for joining us here on Computer America. Hopefully, you had a good time. I certainly did. And one final reminder, Computer America will not be on the air Monday or Tuesday of next week, but we will be back Wednesday with a brand new show and, uh, yeah, looking forward to it. So everyone out there, have a great weekend. Catch you here next week. And in the meantime, do something fun, go see a movie, or, uh, hey, just relax. So everyone, have a great one. Bye-bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.